Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burn. Tonight, it's always tough the next day when you have a restless sleep, but imagine sleeping for four seconds at a time. That's right, four seconds. And taking 10,000 micro naps a day. Well, that's exactly what chin strap penguins do. So how does that work physiologically? And how is our understanding of sleep patterns in animals evolving because of it? We find out. Massive home renovations, or gut jobs as they're called, can be a very scary and equally unpredictable experience. HGTV Canada host and builder Sebastian Clovis tackles exactly those kinds of scary projects in his new show, rightfully called Gut Job. And he joins me to talk about common mistakes and some do's and don'ts. Soap fans have been watching Laura Lee Bell's life on screen unfold before their very eyes for decades now. The Young and the Restless star marks 40 years this year as Christine Cricket Blair, making her debut as a 13-year-old all the way back in 1983. She's with me to talk about her incredible career, including a daytime Emmy in 2016, what it's like to embody the same character for four decades, the ups and downs, and some of what you don't see on screen. But first, good fences make good neighbors is an age-old saying, but it's hard to miss how many neighbors fall into bitter feuds. They can often be mutually destructive. So how do you dial back the animosity and keep things civil, even friendly on the home front? We find out. We're going to kick off tonight with something that we can probably all identify with. How well do you get along with your neighbors? It can be a fraught relationship, of course. The old adage, good fences make good neighbors, is usually pretty true, but not always. Uh, You know, when you have a good relationship, it can be awesome, right? But the feuds, the feuds could be the stuff of daytime TV, even news magazines. Inside Edition often looks into the most extreme fights amongst folks who live side by side. Here's one example. One man really got back at his neighbor for impeding on his territory. Gabriel Braun says he has been feuding with his neighbor for years. And after a land survey showed that half of his neighbor's garage was on his property, Braun split the difference. (laughs) Sawing the garage in half so that it was no longer on his side. These dueling neighbors are well known to local authorities. At least once a week, there's there's some kind of uh, property dispute amongst uh, the people. This one uh, is as extreme as, I, as I've ever seen. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, really. But, you know, they're by no means alone. Here's one that caught the reason why I wanted to talk about this tonight as I was reading this article this morning. And, you know, I have a lot of articles to read every day. And this one I just couldn't stop because a judge in Ottawa had just ruled on what had been an eight-year feud between neighbours that led to 12 bylaw complaints, two police conduct investigations, a peace bond application, a criminal mischief charge, one lawsuit for defamation, harassment, and the infliction of mental distress. Get this, they moved in together. These were new builds in the Ottawa suburb of Orleans back in 2015. And they moved in side by side at the same time. And of course, as always, they got on okay at the beginning. But then there was an episode with some rocks and, you know, just the little things turned into big things. And each side, I mean, it just devolved it dissolved into this awful feud last year one of the two parties actually sold up and moved on bringing this eight-year feud to an end at least outside of these court cases that are still going on it's an extreme example of what can happen when neighbors don't get along but there must be a way 
to settle things before they get completely out of hand like that. Colm Brannigan is a mediator and arbitrator in the Toronto area. He's a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators as well. He's co-author of a book called Online Dispute Resolution yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he joins me now. Colm, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you, Ben. I really appreciate I mean, the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, you. I mean, I know this. I know you deal with a lot of different kinds of mediation and disputes and so on. But the neighborly ones are so nasty. You must have some experience with the kinds of things that I've been talking about already. I do, uh, and yes, you're right. They're nasty because you know they just impact people in the area that's most important to them in many ways. Their home. Yeah. What do you usually I mean in your experience? Without going into details, obviously, I know a lot of this is 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 confidential. But what usually triggers these things? Is it something always something really small and kind of kind of you know, sort of irrelevant, and it balloons into these awful relationships? Well, it generally takes time, and it generally starts off with small stuff that people ignore, because uh, and you know most of us think oh conflict bad, when in reality it's how you deal with conflict, it's neither good nor bad. So people leave little things alone, and then before they know it, it's become a big thing. So, you know, relationships change. In every relationship, there can be rough times. And in neighbor disputes, there can be very rough times and sometimes a real lack of common sense in an approach to it. But it's pretty hard to really put your finger on it because there's so many different types of neighbor disputes and depends on where you are. And more people generally means more conflict. But, you know, cottage country and rural areas are filled with their own issues. So it's really hard to do that. But it all comes down to communication or lack of it, I think, at the beginning and trying to deal more proactively before things blow up. Uh But you've seen you see a lot of that. And um, the pandemic has left a real legacy. And it's another pandemic, pandemic of conflict and disputes that have really ramped up much quicker than they might have in the pre-pandemic days. Yeah, tell me about that, because you would have been right on the front lines of it. I know, obviously, uh, online dispute resolution is something that, you've, that, you're, that you do as well, and that obviously took off during the pandemic. But disputes, I didn't realize that disputes had taken off during the pandemic as well. I guess we were all on edge. Yeah, and, and after as well. I mean, you know, when people, little things bother them. And I, and I just think of an example, which I can give to you, which is a neighbor mm-hmm. dispute. Um, neighbors in stacked townhouses, so one above the other. And as often happens, they're, they're you know, getting on a bit in age. So the uh, people want to upgrade their homes and they take out the carpet and put in wood floors. But of course, that creates noise issues in the unit underneath it. And one that I um, was fortunate enough to work with in the pandemic, it had escalated to violence and, you know, threats, uh, racial comments and it was really because the people didn't communicate. The people at the top, and there was a uh, young parent with three very young children, and underneath was uh, another single parent with two older kids who were studying at college and university. And they had different work hours, and this person was a first responder. And so what happened was that the children up above um, were, like all kids, a bit noisy. But because of the change in the floors, it was amplified into the unit below. Now, it had escalated to such a point, and you you brought in online dispute resolution. I would have been very reluctant to try and bring those people together in person. As it was, we managed to do that. And um, ironically, in the middle of a conversation online, it was a loud thump. 
And the one person from upstairs said, was that from my unit? And the person said, yes. And that changed everything. But what really changed it was they started talking to each other as people, not as enemies, not as, you know, you're doing something to hurt me. It took quite, it took a while, but it worked. And it I guess, often yeah. will work, but, but you've got to be very careful that they, they can escalate very quickly. I, I guess the big issue often with neighbors is that you don't know them. I mean, you share, you share, nearly share an address, but they're not family often. Sometimes they are. Um, you may or may not have much in common. You just happen to live on the same street. Now, that should, in, in all, for all intents and purposes, and for the good of your sanity, it should mean that you get along, or at least you're cordial with each other. But you don't, when things start to devolve, you don't really have any mechanisms to communicate because you wouldn't cross paths in normal life other than because you live next door to each other. Well, that's absolutely right. But, you know, the real problem is that once the the, uh, conflict kind of simmers for a while, people start looking at each other as enemies and they lose perspective. And they also look at legal rights and positions rather than what's in everybody's best interest. You know, say common sense is lacking in many of these disputes. You know, we tend to think that if you disagree with us, you're unreasonable, but that's not necessarily true. So again, it flips back to what I said. It means communication. And over the pandemic, and indeed for the last wee while, you know, people tend to communicate email, text messages, social media. And those are, you know, communication methods that are maybe not as rich. So if you send your neighbor a, a text message or you send them an email, you know, it's very easy to misinterpret that. So, you know, not directly dealing with the problem or approaching the neighbor can often, if you try and do it indirectly, can really ratchet it up. And you're right. You need to get to know your neighbors. You don't have to be best friends with them, but you need to get to know them um, because it's somewhat like family. You don't have much of a choice. They're there, and you might want to try building a relationship. If that doesn't work, I mean, obviously, there are options, but the worst option probably is to leave um, and you know sell your house, and that's not very palatable. So there really is a premium on, I think, you know, trying to get to know the neighbor. What is the problem? You both see it the same way. And, and you know, something that's really missing in our pandemic world is civility and politeness. Try and be nice. Um, also, at the same time, I think you need to keep a record, you know, a log of what's going on because it may become important later on. Um, yeah, I can... Yeah, I can imagine those. That's something that could start things going. My apologies, sorry. Not at all, not at all. I, I, I was just thinking, I'm, you know, posting something nasty on the, on the local neighborhood Facebook group probably doesn't help matters much either. So I guess it all depends where you live, right? So I guess a lot of people live in sort of townhouses and condos. They live on top of each other now. And I guess within those environments, there are dispute resolution mechanisms that you can turn to, right? You don't have to take on the war by yourself. That's correct, yep. In uh, BC, you have the uh, Civil Resolutions Tribunal, which deals with strata disputes. And in Ontario, you have the Condominium Authority Tribunal. And they deal with the similar types of disputes, you know, noise, nuisance, those kind of things. Um, but it's the uh, ones um, outside of that that the way of fixing them can become very expensive if you decide to, you know, immediately jump to legal action. And some people will do that. And I'm not talking about getting legal advice. You probably should on any significant one. But often the letter from the lawyer right at the beginning is not the way to go. 
you need to be able to talk to the neighbor, at least try to, and, you know, listen to what they're saying, because active listening is what it says. It means being active. Listen to what they say. Be open to what they say. Can you work together for a compromise? Maybe you can. Many people do. I mean, you know, a tiny number of cases actually end up in court, but most are negotiated. Look outside. I mean, if you can't make it work between your neighbor and yourself, maybe look at a community mediation group or a private mediator, a third-party neutral who will help you, partial to the outcome. And mediation is a very high success rate. I mean, 80% of mediated cases, according to at least anecdotal evidence, you know, resolve. But I think it's important to know your rights as well. That doesn't mean, as I said, taking legal action. You probably want to stay out of court if you want to for a number of reasons. It's expensive um, and you may not get the outcome you want. And even if you do win, what does that mean if you're stuck with an even more hostile neighbor? So it's all about communication or trying. Now, that's easier said than done often, but I think it is. And, you know, I was looking at some articles on neighbor disputes and there's a quote in a one from about 10 years ago where a judge was commenting that the neighbors in the dispute actually needed a rather stern kindergarten teacher. And I think that's really sums it up. Yeah. yeah. You, need, you need to just try because that makes an enormous difference. And, you know, you have different disputes, as you say. I mean, in many urban areas, parking is a huge dispute because we have infill apartment work or apartments and houses, not enough parking. People get very upset about that. But it can be fences, it can be in a cottage, docks, you name it. And and people can find a way to fight over it. So the question is, how do you diffuse that? And that's, I think, where getting legal advice, looking at your bylaws in the municipality, and then trying to fix it. If not, look to some kind of third party to help. And as I said, there are community mediation associations that do a lot of that type of work, including bylaw disputes. And it's only if they don't work that you should look down the legal route. And even then, you're probably going to settle it. So put the effort in at the beginning. Try and sort it then. Because, you know, it'll take years to fix it in court, and it'll just escalate while you're doing it and won't make it better. And it makes, makes, you know, your most important possession, your home, a miserable place. And why would you want that? I mean, I, I listen, I, I know all about sort of tempers and, and holding grudges and all that stuff. But sometimes you really just got to take a step back and think, how much do I want to be right here versus how much do I want to have a quiet life? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it shouldn't be about I'm going to get, get at you. You know, one of the revenge is not great. The best revenge is living well. The way to live well with your neighbor is to sort out the dispute. If it gets to the stage where it has to be dealt with by a judge, well, I'm not a mediator who says, don't stand on your legal rights. I'm just saying you should know what you're doing. And that starts at the beginning. Don't blunder into, you know, a much bigger uh, conflict becomes a dispute. The dispute becomes very expensive and very nasty. And you can understand it to a degree. Our homes are really important. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they are they are your castle, right? So you will defend it, but sometimes mm-hmm. you you got you're right. It just got you got to you got to de-escalate. Colm Brannigan, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you. 
Let's head to to an area. Well, well, you know, neighbors exist uh, geopolitically as well, and of course, the war in Gaza has continued ever since that ceasefire uh, came to an end uh, just a few days ago. Israel's mil- Israeli Israel's military rather now has uh, renewed calls for mass evacuations. Now, from the southern Gaza town of Khan Yunis, which is the second uh, biggest city in Gaza, as it's widened its ground offensive and bombarded targets across the Gaza Strip as it tries, it continues in its stated objective of destroying Hamas after that attack on October the 7th that killed uh, more than 1,200 people uh, in southern Israel. There are still about more than 100 and some odd hostages being held uh, by different groups in Gaza as well, Israeli hostages. Um, Tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians who've been told in recent weeks to go south for their safety. They were moved out of the north where Gaza City is. That was the main population center, are now on the move again. Now, the U.S. has been putting some pressure on Israel to avoid further mass casualties, and Israel says it's being more precise as it widens its offensive. Military spokesperson uh, Richard Hecht uh, says they are not targeting civilians. While we've been operating, we are ensuring that there is minimum harm to civilians with soldiers on the ground going from building to building. Uh, Again, Palestinians say, though, there are no areas where they feel safe now because they're being pushed south, and many fear that if they leave their homes, they will not be allowed to return. The Israeli army is dropping leaflets over Khan Yunus, telling residents to evacuate to safe zones that are marked on an online map. But UNICEF's James Edler says, with limited electricity and power, it will be difficult for anyone to access those maps. The safe zones, it's a false narrative and it's a dangerous narrative. People don't have the transport. They don't know where they're meant to go. Yeah, I mean, the health ministry uh, in Gaza, and these, again, these are numbers from there, so do with them as you will. But, of course, thousands killed at this point, they believe, civilians, right? So we have civilians killed on the Israeli side, civilians killed on the Gazan side. Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, our Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, told reporters in Ottawa there were some successes during the temporary ceasefire that ended last week. She'd like to see more of that. Nearly half of the hostages were released, and we saw more humanitarian aid going in Gaza. Now, the resumption of violence is devastating. And the cycle of violence will not ensure Israel's long-term security. So, of course, therein lies the issue right now. So Israel, as was stated from the get-go, from, you know, not long after that Hamas attack on the 7th, their stated goal is to destroy Hamas. Uh, clearly, they have countries such as Canada and the UK and the US backing their their desire to do this, saying that they can no longer feel safe with Hamas in charge in Gaza. Um, they started off, obviously, in the northern part uh, of the Gaza Strip, moving uh, civilians out of Gaza City. And, of course, there's a whole warren of tunnels that exist underneath Gaza that are used by Hamas to circulate around the area, and it makes it a very difficult military operation for them there as well. And then there is still the issue of the hostages, because there are still hostages being held in Gaza in these networks of tunnels. Uh, Joining me now with more on this is retired Australian Army Major General Mick Ryan. He's author of War Transformed. Uh, Mick, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back. It's great to be with you again. How are you? Um, well, I mean, this is um, just watching from a military standpoint, a move into southern Gaza. I mean, it seems so fraught. There are so many civilians there. It is such a densely populated area. Uh, there is these tunnels that are there. Uh, obviously, uh, Hamas will have amassed, I gather, down there. How do you see it from your point of view? This is uh, Your perspective on this must be a fascinating one. Well, it is fascinating to watch this from the other side of the world. Uh, at the end of the day, this government of Israel has two strategic objectives with what it's doing here. It's 
seeking to destroy Hamas and to get back its hostages. Sometimes those two things can be in conflict because in the process of destroying Hamas and the conduct of military operations, you can put hostages at risk. So I think in the coming days we will see Israel to continue operations in the north and expand operations in the south as it heads towards those two objectives. You know, we watched the early stages of this conflict, of this war, at least in Gaza, where the Israeli army went in after a few weeks, actually. It, it, took, it took some time before they moved in um, to northern Gaza. But now that they're moving towards the south, it feels like a very different kind of fight that will take place there. Because essentially, all of Gaza now, most of it, has been the people who live there, as well as, I suspect, the fighters, have now been moved south. And it ends up being, I, I would think, all the more challenging. Absolutely, that's the case. I mean, it's not like the people who have left the north can go back there. For many of them, there's nothing to go back to, and it's still an active combat zone. So you have an even greater concentration of uh, civilians in the south. That is going to be a significant humanitarian challenge, but it's also a military challenge for the Israelis. They are not setting out to kill or wound civilians here. They're trying to dismantle and destroy Hamas, Unfortunately, however, as we have seen, uh, these operations have resulted in civilian casualties and it's undoubted that this will occur in the south as well. How, I mean, how realistic is it, given the circumstances, given how embedded Hamas is in Gaza, given the tunnel networks and so on, um, how realistic is it and how difficult will it be to try to eradicate or eliminate Hamas? We've seen other armies try to do the same thing with other groups in other parts in other parts of the region even and it's proven a real challenge absolutely i mean the easy part of this is the military element where you kill and destroy hamas fighters and their infrastructure and their leaders that's actually the easy part the really hard bit here is killing the idea that recruits people into hamas to for, you know, for the Israelis, what they need to do is more than just win the war with military force. They need to be able to win the peace. And to do that, they need to be able to create an environment for Palestinian society in Gaza where young men and women being recruited in Hamas is not an attractive option. And that will require uh, governance reforms, reconstruction and a range of other things once all these military operations are over. Yeah. When you look at the, at, at the issue of civilians, because it comes up a lot, right? And I gather if you just look at different differing opinions around the world, there seems to be different prisms for this conflict, for whether you're, you know, here we are in Canada, I'm sure, uh, I gather in Australia, it's relatively the same, in the US, the UK, uh, about Israel's right to defend itself and its right to eradicate Hamas and so on. But in other parts of the world, there's been a growing, growing anger over, over the civilian deaths. And it feels like there's not a lot of time here for Israel. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure that's still true now, now that this has resumed. Um, but it feels like the, the time is not infinite here for them to carry out this operation. No, that's that's right. I mean, in, in every war, the clock is always ticking. In some, it's ticking faster than others. In previous Israeli incursions into Hamas, uh, like in 2021, they had about eight or nine days before time really ran out for them and the US persuaded them to cease operations. I think the magnitude of the atrocities on the 7th of October has given the Israelis more leeway this time. At the end of the day, 
the mindset of Israel has changed in the wake of 7 October. For the first time in a very, very long time, the state of Israel, the people of Israel feel an existential threat to their existence and they are you know, conducting military operations and diplomacy in a way that they wish to remove that. So I think they've probably got more time than many of us anticipated at the beginning of the, the war in Gaza, but it is not infinite. And at some point, I think there will be some serious discussions with the Americans about a more permanent kind of ceasefire. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, the Americans have been very supportive from the get-go in this, but I know that behind the scenes, because we we heard about it uh, when that uh, temporary truce was negotiated with the Qataris and so on, that there is there is pressure on Israel in the background to try to keep this, to try to uh, cease this as fast as possible. Well, I, absolutely, and for the Americans in particular, that they, they have multiple motivations for a more peaceful Middle East. It's not just about. Uh, preventing the deaths of civilians in Israel and Gaza, but also uh, the many attacks that have occurred against US forces throughout the Middle East. Over 70 now have occurred, as well as attacks against shipping uh, around uh, you know, the Gulf of Arabia and these kind of places. So you know, the US is seeing instability across the region, which it's trying to tamp down. Yeah, have you been? I mean, I think this was a quote that you that we shared once. You shared with me once. I think we go back to almost the the Russia's invasion or further invasion of Ukraine. About once uh, conflict is like water. Like once you let it go, you don't know where it goes, right? Or I think I'm I'm, I'm misquoting you. I, I apologize, Mick. But the um, but in this sense, when there was a lot of concern off the get from the get go about this becoming a broader regional conflict, and at least so far, it looks like. Some of the neighbors and so on, whether it be you know in Hezbollah and Lebanon or so on, have have kind of stepped back for a bit. I don't know if that's the same impression you're getting. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. You know, once a war starts, it's very hard to predict where it might go. There's a lot of uncertainty involved when two people are trying to kill each other. Uh, we've seen that in Ukraine, as as you mentioned, and and we're seeing it now. I mean, the trajectory of this war is still uncertain. Uh, we expected. Uh, probably some form of conflict in northern Israel with Hezbollah that has not eventuated, even though there are very frequent skirmishes resulting in the deaths of Israeli soldiers as well as uh, Hezbollah terrorists. But what we have not anticipated has occurred is the Houthis uh, undertaking a range of different missile and drone attacks uh, to the south. So this kind of indicates to us that you know you need to be prepared for lots of things beyond what you can see. Um, and that there are other ways in which this war might es- escalate, which we haven't yet foreseen. Yeah, explain, because I think I don't think we've paid a lot of attention yet to the situation in Yemen. Of course, there's been a civil war going on, a proxy war going on there for quite a while between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the Houthis are the Iranian backside, um, as far as I remember. And 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 they've actually been quite they've been quite aggressive in all this, which is uh, and done some fairly aggressive things in the past uh, eight weeks or so, which I think is a bit of a surprise. And that's one area I didn't, I mean, I don't think people weren't talking about it because they just didn't know much about that conflict compared to, say, what's happened in Lebanon over the past decades. Absolutely. I mean, everyone kind of looked north or or looked uh, to the West Bank for people uh, opportunistically to uh, exploit uh, Israel's distraction and Gaza. That can to a degree, but uh, what has happened, which people didn't anticipate, was the Houthi 
long-range missile attacks against Israel, missile and drone attacks against civil shipping and, and the US Navy. I mean, this is a very uh, difficult problem and a serious problem for uh, trade in that area. And uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and the United States are probably going to have to come up with a solution to it. Uh, Mick, from your perspective, what I've been wondering all this time is, I mean, I, I get the I get the public relations side of this, but what is Hamas trying to achieve here? Uh, because it feels like they're going to get beaten badly, I think. Uh, but I, I'm struggling to figure out what exactly their aims are here, other than to try to drag Israel into Gaza and make them look bad. I think there's a there's a few different objectives here. I think it's worth stating up front that I I think Hamas probably achieved more success, what it would perceive as success, we wouldn't, uh, on 7 October than it probably expected. Um, so uh, it, it was able to murder and, and kill far more people than even it probably expected. So I think even it's been surprised in some respects by what's happened since then. But I think a, a big objective by Hamas was to bring the uh, plight of the Palestinian people back in front of the world. The pending Saudi arrangement with Israel kind of submerged the issue of Palestinians as has Israel's other arrangements with regional countries. So I think that is a large part of it, is to bring back the plight of the Palestinian people to the forefront. Um, certainly part of that, which is part of its founding document is to uh, ensure that uh, it does things that turns opinion against Israelis. And in some respects, they did lure them into a conflict in, in Gaza. And that's what we've seen eventually. And for the Israelis, too, when one thinks about, as you say, winning peace is, is the main objective here. When one looks forward... Uh, and thinks about what Israel will have to do. I mean, you know, they left Gaza, you know, 15, 16 years ago uh, for, for good reason. Do they now occupy it again in the sense, do they now police it again, have to maintain a, a constant presence there um, with their own soldiers and people? I mean, it's, it seems like a huge undertaking. I get the security implications of it, uh, but it seems fraught. Yeah, gosh, it's it's such a it's a big problem. I mean, I think you've seen Benjamin Netanyahu in the last few days saying they don't want the Palestinian Authority back. Clearly, uh, Hamas won't be back. He's kind of ruled Gaza for some time now. Uh, the Israelis admitted when they withdrew the last time that occupying Gaza was was not for them. Uh, you're not going to see Americans or Canadians or Australians running the place as part of the national force. So this is a real conundrum. And I, I think they're going to have to come up with some arrangement with regional countries, be it Egypt or Qatar or UAE, Saudi Arabia, for some form of temporary governance structure that's acceptable to the people of Gaza and doesn't result in more violence. But it, this is a very, very difficult challenge for them. Have we? I mean, when one looks back at Iraq and obviously Afghanistan, uh, where we've all been, uh, and, and looks at some of the you know some of the successes and failures, certainly when it came to winning peace, uh, the difficulty there, are there lessons that we've learned in those in those conflicts that can be applied here, or is this hasn't always been something quite separate? Well, I mean, the, the problem uh, of peace in the Middle East with Israel and its neighbours has been an intractable problem for a long time. I mean, there's a reason why multiple wars have been fought. is because some of the positions, unfortunately, are just uh, irreconcilable. Um, 
you know, Israel is, is there to stay. It's good that there is a Jewish homeland. I don't think anyone can really, anyone of goodwill can quibble with that. But there are organisations such as Hamas and others whose founding documents are about the extermination of the Israeli state. Um, and until those irreconcilable differences are resolved, I think we're going to continue to see tensions and, and conflicts like this continue into the future. What will you be looking out for then in the next uh, few weeks or so? I guess there's still hope that there may be, uh, especially with pressure to try and get those other remaining hostages released. I know it'll be more, might be trickier now. Well, some of them left are soldiers and so on, uh, but that clearly is still a priority. Uh, what will you be looking for in the next in the next sort of four to eight weeks as this conflict evolves? Um, I'll be looking at uh, the statements of regional leaders. I think that's really important. I mean, Israel, at the end of the day, has to work with uh, Egypt, has to work with Jordan, UAE, and Qatar, and Saudi Arabia to come up with some solution here. And if we're not seeing uh, statements that are too negative towards Israel, it means there's hope there for some kind of short and medium-term arrangement. So I think that's important. Uh, also looking clearly at uh, military hostilities to seeing how that goes. But at the end of the day, it's the diplomatic settlement that comes after military operations that I'll be looking for. What is that longer term winning the peace kind of arrangement that Israel will come up with with its security partners and its regional neighbours? Right, because it, I mean, at least from afar, other than rumours, of course, of Qatar being involved in the um, in the negotiations for that truce alongside, I guess, Hamas. And it feels like the neighbours have been have been pretty quiet. It's pretty quiet over the last few weeks, at least. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, uh, no one in the neighbourhood likes Hamas. Certainly uh, Egypt and its problems with the Muslim Brotherhood will be happy to see Hamas gone as will many other regional nations. Now, clearly, they have a very fine balancing act in getting rid of Hamas, but also listening to the concerns of their own citizens about the plight of the Palestinian people. Um, and this gets back to one of Hamas's driving reasons for the atrocities of 7 October. It felt that regional nations had abandoned it, and it sought to put their plight back in front of the world again. Yeah, and there's always Iran, of course, which we haven't spoken about. Yes, unfortunately, Iran is uh, going to be an irritant in international affairs and Middle East affairs for some time to come. Uh, they support all kinds of atrocious organisations and terrorist groups, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, among others that are attacking Israel and the Americans across the Middle East at the moment, uh, at some point they're going to have to be dealt with. I'm just not sure what that solution might be. Well, McRyan, as always, I appreciate your insight on this. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Great to talk to you again. We've been talking about soap operas tonight. I was asking which ones you watch. I said that, you know, for a while I was a pretty avid Coronation Street watcher, mostly because of that, of that omnibus, edi omnibus edition on Sunday mornings. I wouldn't watch it sort of in, during the week, but on Sunday mornings it was on for like two hours and you just turn it on and sort of did your stuff. So I used to watch that. And I did have a roommate, a few roommates back in university. And one of them used to watch soap operas, Days of Our Lives, YNR, religiously. She used to watch them every day. So she would tape them and then watch them. Uh, and they were always on. They were always on. So 
I, I through osmosis, know quite a bit about them. Uh, Janet in St. Albert says, Y&R is the only soap that I watch. Jason Thompson as Billy uh, Abbott is Canadian. Are there any other Canadian actors on the show? Janet, I will have to look that up. I'll have to look that up for you. And uh, we had another... Um, Vian Edmonton said, as a kid, I remember the edge of the night and another world. I stopped watching soaps a few years ago. Once in a while, I will watch Coronation Street. Well, there are few uh, people who embody a character as much as my next guest. For the past 40 years, since she was 13, she made her debut back in 1984, Laura Lee Bell has played the role of Christine Cricket Blair on the CBS show, The Young and the Restless. Again, she made her first appearance all the way back in 1984. It was just supposed to be for two episodes. Uh, again, she was known as Cricket back then. Her parents were the show's creators, by the way, William Bell and Lee Philip Bell. That was more than 1,600 episodes ago. Other than a few brief breaks when she was on maternity leave and a little gap there in the late knot, she's been on the show ever since. Um, they even aired a special episode marking her 40-year milestone last month. Have a listen. You tore my son away from me. That was your doing. I know. That was your doing. All of it. The lies, the way you used people. You dragged an ex-boyfriend back here and drugged him to get a sample of his blood to cover up your little secret. Ah, the plots in those things are always so are always so rich with intrigue. Um, the plot line that her character is perhaps best known for is her longtime romance with Danny Aromalotti, played by Michael Damien, a name you may recommend may recognize as well. Her rivalry with Phyllis Summers, uh, played by Michelle Stafford. In real life, Belle is, Belle is married. She has two kids in their twenties, a son and a daughter in their early twenties, I should say. But when you embody a character for forty years, it's like having something of a parallel life, right? Because people just have watched watched you grow up and they they know who you are as your character that you've played for so long and of course being on a soap is a lot of hard work they do a lot of shooting they have to memorize a lot of stuff so it's my pleasure Laura Lee Bell 2016 daytime Emmy Award winner joins me from the set of YNR at CBS Studios in LA a place that is as much home as one place could be for any actor Laura Lee thank you so much Oh, thank you. Yes, I am sitting on, well, not on the set. I'm sitting in a dressing room at the set. How about that? It's incredible, just, yeah. Just tape some very juicy scenes. You're going to love them. Awesome. It's it's amazing to think that, I mean, I remember watching YNR as a kid. Then I remember, as, as like many people, I had a roommate in my, in my 20s who taped the show every single day. So it was always on when I came home from, from university. And uh, we're about the same age. It feels like I watched you grow up. It really oh. does. Well, I love that so much. So when your roommate started you were, you, were you sort of like, oh, oh, what's he watching? Or And then suddenly you're like sitting down and who's well, that? Well, of course, because you kind of, because of the way the shows are structured, you can just dip in every once. You don't have to watch it the whole thing all the time. You can sort of dip in and think, oh, you know, that's what, you know, that, that that's what Victor's up to. Or like right. you could just sort of, yeah, that's what makes them so makes enjoyable that to a point but then maybe there's like some crazy juicy day that day that you didn't see but thank goodness that's what taping's all about right i guess that's when that's when that comes in handy yeah especially well back in the 90s of course uh 40 40 years i mean it was uh it, it was talked about a lot the special episode was on uh, what's it been like for you uh, well it has gone by in a blink um i mean if you followed along right doesn't doesn't it, like when you say 40 doesn't that seem crazy that you've been watching for 40 years almost 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, it's, it's gone by. It feels like it went by. It feels like yesterday we were listening, you know, listening to Whitney Houston and, you know, right. I had sort of like Anthony Michael Hall hair, you know, yeah, it was like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's just, so like I come up the same stairs every, every day. And so, yeah, I like think back to, oh my gosh, I was walking up these stairs when I was single and oh my gosh, then I was married. And then I've had two kids who are, my, our son's about to, you know, turn 23 and our son, our daughter just turned 21. And then, you know, and then now my 40 year, and it's like literally those, just that walk up the steps. It just, it can't, it, I can't process that in my brain that it's that, that kind of, um, you know, time has, has gone by, but, um, but it's great. I mean, I, I love my job and I love the character and I love what they're doing right now and bringing the whole kind of triangle and Phyllis and Danny, all this stuff back. And so, you know, it's so fun for us. Um, we're just having a great time. So yeah, it's, it's gone by in a blink, but I, I just, I'm so grateful for every day. And I, I, um, I love getting a new script and yeah, just super excited. You started this young too. I mean, well, a lot of us were still in, in primary school. You were, you had already sort of gotten your first taste. Of course, your parents were, were intimately involved in the business. Was there ever any, any concerns about, about you going and doing sort of doing the same kind of thing? Was there ever anything? Well, you know, maybe, maybe you can go to something different because this life, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So we grew up in Chicago, so we weren't really around it. My mom had a right. talk show, so I would be around her set, which was a talk show. And that was um, really fascinating. And so, yeah, when I, when we sort of did little family trips out here for my dad to come in and check in and um, go to cast parties, I, it was completely supposed to be, you know, a, a, sh a short term thing. Like I was supposed, I was an extra when I was nine. It's just, I thought it was, my comment was, it was, oh, that was so easy. And my dad was like, was like, oh no, this is not, <laughs> this is not what I wanted you to get out of this because this is anything but easy. We have so many people, so many moving parts, so many, you know, I mean, sets are being built and actors are and makeup and hair. Like it's so much going on. It's definitely not easy. Um, so a couple of years later, he just thought, you know, let's just put her back in for, for two days because it made sense. Jabot Jr. was um, happening and, and Ashley Abbott was creating this incredible line and why not put a true young person in rather than an older person playing a younger person. Um, so, you know, it, that's how it started. My mom definitely wanted me to go to college and be a tri-delt. Um, my dad, I just don't think he thought it would go past two days. So I don't think there was any thought there, but once, once it, started happening and then people were kind of fascinated with the fact that there were some young people on soaps for their kids to also be in the house and kind of come into the room when young people were on um it sort of it caught on and then it was just going to be a great summer storyline um which would be perfect like the kids are home let's use this opportunity to to teach them like it's okay to say no or you know don't drink and drive it's like all these great message storylines and then you know here we are 40 years later <laughs> amazing yep my dad was in the music business so i wasn't allowed to play an instrument <laughs> that was how it worked he was like there's no way my son's becoming a musician my mom had a radio talk show so i kind of similar to you I kind of grew up in that uh, in that environment, but uh, yeah, here we here we are. What's it been like to grow up on screen? Because I'm sure when people meet you, they feel like just like I was just saying when when fans meet you, they feel like they know you because they do know you. I mean, they know you about as well as anyone could know anyone on that yeah. small screen. I mean, I'm really you know, I'm I feel like I'm so much more fun than my character and <laughs> no. and much more spontaneous and you know all of that stuff. So um, so yes, they know me uh, to a point, of course. It was definitely it, for me to look back at when someone puts on a, a scene from the 80s or 90s, I, I just, you know, I cringe and like literally hold on until it's over because 
it was just, you know, a big bouffant permi do. <laughs> it was a lot of, you know, shoulder pads and it was just a lot to look at. And so yeah, yeah, some people have fun looking back at those. I I it's painful for me. Um, but you know, I I it comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I feel super grateful. Not too many people can say that they've had uh, an audience that literally has sort of come along on on this journey. And like people say like, oh, well, when you had kids, I had kids. And I got another one the other day. Hi, I'm Cricket. And my mom named me after you. Um, <laughs> that they, the stories never get old. And it's really sweet and endearing. And um, yeah, I just, I am super, super grateful for that. And I and, and I've heard you talk about this, but because of the amount of time that so many of the characters have been on the show, so many of the actors have been on the show, you're a family too. I mean, it's it's very different from I. I mean, I know you've done other TV. I know you've done movies. I mean, it must be different than that sort of. You get together as an ensemble, then you do it. You know, it's an intense few months, and then you stop. Uh, yeah. This is just this is like family. Completely. It's so you know it's so weird to have started, and you know Peter Bergman's kids were toddlers and now you know one of his ch you know children just got married and um even Michelle even Michelle's kids like I feel like they were just like in diapers and now you know her daughter Natalia is like the head of the volleyball team like it's just it's crazy so yes when we see each other it's not sort of like an awkward um hello in the hair and makeup room it's like you know, what's going on with that person? And, and did your aunt come in? And how are you, you know, like, there's so much, we just know each other so well. And it's, there's something so comforting about that. Um, because you don't have to worry about like, you know, on camera, what they're going to think or whatever. We just all have each other's back. We're also um, proud of the show and, and the fact that it's still going strong and, and that we're all still together. I mean, there's, it's, we're really fortunate. Here, stand right over here, please. Ah, don't tell me, I know what to do. Close my eyes. <laughs> mm. That's the one. The one what? That's the one. Look above you. <gasps> Mistletoe, I never would have guessed. Strategically placed all over this apartment. Laura Lee Bell is with us this half hour. Uh, you'll remember her, or you'll know her as Christine. Blair from Young and the Restless, or Cricket, if you prefer, from uh, from the name that she had way back when. I, I imagine that name has gone, has come and gone over the years. Um, I, and we're just talking about the forty years she's been on the show. It's a remarkable achievement uh, for any actor to, to to be on a show and and to embody a character for that long. Um, Laura Lee, would you look at some at some of the your favorite storylines? I mean, you were just saying, and I know how tough this is. You do so much work that it's hard to remember all the things you've done. But there must be a few storylines, and I, I might I might guess one, but there must be a few storylines that have been really really close to your heart. No, you'll have to tell me one of your favorites. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, of course, I remember Michael Damien vividly, right? So, of course, that's the one. Everyone must remember that. I mean, people must ask you about it as if you were a real couple. People were that close to you, right? Yeah. I, well, I mean, what was so great about that is just, you know, I mean, it covered so many, like, checked so many boxes because it's like, it seemed unbelievable that this young girl that looked up to the rock star was like, you know, like, could she actually ever be with him? I don't think so. And then suddenly this friendship grew and and then like I grew up where suddenly the visual of it didn't seem so you know like kind of kitty like you know like like too young to be with him I don't know and then suddenly we were 
you know, friends. And then it just, it just grew, it grew in real time. I think that is really the key. And I also, you know, looking back at all these scenes, we were very playful. He was very romantic. I mean, it was really a romance and it was really a, a relationship where people could escape. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was super fun and that's really what we're trying to, I mean, I, the comments now are like, I've been waiting 30 years <laughs> for you guys to like, it's a long time. <laughs> be back together. That's huge. And that's like, we take that so seriously. Um, and we're so excited to not only have the opportunity to see we're on the set. This yes, indeed. Good. Yeah. Yeah. That's your instructions are coming through. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would, I would imagine that because of the amount of time you have to work together because of the pace of the show that it wouldn't work if it wasn't real, like it couldn't work if you didn't have chemistry. Yeah. I, I mean, we've, right. Well, you, you always say like, I spend more time with my, you know, TV husbands than I do with my own or, you know, just the amount of time we spent together. And, you know, we were, Michael and I were really young and we went on a lot of like fun personal appearances together. Like we have tons and tons of, um, you know, great memories and, and bonding experiences. So when we see each other now, it's like, it's kind of the same thing about walking into the building, you know, for years again, at least we pick up right where we left off. We've definitely been very aware of trying to, um, you know, keep the playfulness of Danny and cricket and, um, and have people get drawn back into what they remember many years ago. And I think, I think it's going to work. Um, I think people will, will get, um, will get, kind of caught in the romance so we'll see but you know there's always a thorn lurking around the danny and cricket you know space a yes. redhead, redhead that's just a constant you know a thorn in your side a thorn yeah. in your side <clears throat> so, well you need you know the path to true love was never was never an easy one right and it can't be it's true and i think look it only makes it more fun and um this will definitely shock some people about kind of how it all goes on oh what's been the if you were to look at sort of and this is sort of a very general question but you look at sort of the toughest part of your job things that people don't know about you mentioned it earlier it might be the discipline just having to be very very disciplined about your work and and always making sure that you that you know your lines and that you're coming in in tip-top shape every single day which is a which is a which is a big ask when yeah, you have a life I mean when you get the scene and like Michelle and I had one today and, you know, you on the days leading up to it, you anticipate how, how it could go. And like, you know, like it's going to be like this great dance and stuff. And then sometimes, you know, either someone goes up or there's a technical problem or whatever. And then um, you continue on. And in like our head today, we were like, Oh, it, it, they're going to buy it. And that's going to go on national TV. And we had, we had, and so we just said, could we please do it one more time? Right. And we were able to, and it was exactly how we had anticipated it. So there's like things like that, you know, or like if you have to do a crying scene, sometimes you get the the script and genuinely just reading it for the first time makes you completely bawl your eyes out. But then suddenly you're on the pressure of having the stage and everyone saying, Shh, this is going to be an emotional scene. And then all of a sudden it's like silence. And, you know, there's always that pressure of like, I could have, I, I cried at home and like, it, I know how emotional it is, but I know I've got one shot at this. So like you always just pray that all the stars are going to align. And for me, you know, I, my biggest goal is to have whoever's watching feel something or like really know that like, this is, this is hard for me during the breakup with Paul, like, you know, people would, a couple of people like specifically said, like, we could tell it was really hard for you to even talk. 
Laura Lee, congratulations on the 40 years. Uh, look forward to seeing what happens with you and Danny, of course, and uh, and Phyllis. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time. <laughs> no, much appreciated. No, no, Phyllis. No, no Phyllis. Phyllis. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Let's head to Ottawa now. And, you know, you could go years without ever mentioning the Speaker of the House of Commons. I mean, they're there. They're, it's a big job. It's meant to be an impartial job. Uh, you get a nice bonus for it, right? You get a nice, I think it's an extra 90 grand on top of your top of your paycheck. I'll have to check that out. You have your own cottage that you have uh, that you get. And, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good gig. It's a good gig. And normally what you do is you kind of, you arbitrate the goings-on in Parliament, and you kind of stay out of the way. That's sort of what the job description kind of entails. Well, MPs will be deciding tomorrow whether the House of Commons Speaker Greg Fergus, the latest, um, and a video that he did recently that played at a partisan event constitutes a, quote, serious error of judgment and merits a committee probe. Uh, today, Deputy Speaker Chris Dontremont uh, put the power back in MPs' hands to determine what the consequences should be for Fergus after MPs, uh, specifically Conservative and Bloc Québécois, but also the NDP, question uh, his uh, whether he had really done damage to his impartiality due to this personal tribute video that he made and was played at the Ontario Liberal Party convention last weekend where they named Bonnie Crombie as the new leader. Uh, he delivered the message uh, to former outgoing interim Ontario Liberal Party leader and personal friend John Fraser. Here's, here's what he had to say. And boy, did we have fun. Uh, we had a lot of fun together uh, through the Ottawa South Liberal Association, uh, through Liberal Party politics, by helping Dalton McGinty get elected. Just a little bit of it there. So the problem was that he was wearing his robes. So you have this like this outfit you get as Speaker of the House. He had that on. And as far as I can tell, it was shot inside his office as well. So in other words, he brought, even though this was not a federal Liberal Party event, this was a Ontario Liberal Party event, which is still the Liberal Party. And he was there and he was in the robes. He was sort of using the office as part of the backdrop to all of this. And it, you know, and obviously, if you're the other parties, and this is supposed to be an impartial Speaker of the House, uh, you know, you're going to be upset about it. So the Conservatives in the bloc both believe that Fergus should step down. Uh, here are Conservative MP and former Speaker himself, Andrew Scheer, in the House today, putting forward this motion, followed by bloc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet a little earlier. Our recommendation to the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs will be to recommend to the House that the Speaker resign. Because we do not believe that to go forward, to accept those rulings without appeal, that this current Speaker can, can fulfill that rule. It is like if a judge during a trial was to go to one side of the parties and say, hey, I'm your friend. One must not do that. Right. So you get the opposition. I mean, there's some politics involved here, too, but this is not a good look. This is not a good look. You are meant to be a neutral arbiter. Now, keep in mind, he is a liberal, was elected as a liberal MP. Uh, but still, you're meant to be the the referee of the House. And for a referee to be seen to be impartial, you need to make sure that you keep the, the illusion of being, or not just the illusion, but the reality and the, and, and in every which way or shape, shape or form, also the, you know, the, the image of being impartial. The NDP, here's Peter Julian, He's, they're being a little bit more circumspect about this. We think that when we're talking about the Speaker, we're talking about the precedence of uh, the House of Commons, that we have to approach this in a thoughtful way and that's where the NDP has been coming from. And that's why we believe uh, that this needs to be referred to Procedure and House Affairs. So this kind of thing 
never happens again. All right, so that's what's going to happen next. Keep in mind that Fergus uh, made history becoming the first black Speaker of the House when he was elected just in October after his predecessor, Anthony Rhoda, you may remember this story, also a Liberal MP, resigned following that whole controversy surrounding recognizing a man who'd served in a voluntary Nazi unit during the Second World War during Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Ottawa. So once again, uh, a Speaker of the House is under fire with calls for his resignation. So far, the Liberals are saying that shouldn't be done. Fergus himself, who happens to be Washington today. This was pre-planned. It's his first trip to Washington as Speaker. He was meeting there today with others, including U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He has said that he will not step down. Uh, so joining me with more on this now is Nelson Wiseman. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Toronto. His most recent books are called Partisan Odyssey, Odysseys, Canada's Political Parties, and 1950s Canada, Politics and Public Affairs. Uh, Nelson Wiseman, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Tell me just a bit about your reaction when you first saw this, all of this emerge, because the first thing I thought is, is well, why is he wearing his robes? Well, that's that's what the uh, the conservatives in the Bloc Quebecois are, are wondering as well. I mean, the first thing that struck me is not only was he wearing his robes, but I thought to myself, if he wasn't the Speaker of the House, would he have been invited by John Fraser to do this? And, and that was also shown at a liberal convention here in the city, which got a lot of uh, media attention because they were selecting a new leader. That's the Ontario Liberal Party. So I thought to myself, uh, yes, Fergus, the speaker, says that he and Fraser have been friends for a long time and that he thought this was going to be at an intimate little affair, a party. But even if it was going to be an intimate little affair, why are you appearing in the speaker's gown or robe? It's because you're lending or wanting to let people know that you've got this important position and that it conveys that uh, this person who's in a, in a position of some power is associating with the event. Yeah, I mean, yes. So, I mean, he... As you mentioned, he had sort of an idea that maybe this had been miscommunicated. But either way, it either showed a lack of it either showed a lack of judgment or a lack of a lack of preparedness. Like either you know exactly where this video is going if you're going to do it as the speaker in your office with the robes on, or you don't do it. Well, exactly. Again, how come he was the person who, who was doing this tribute to Fraser to begin with? I don't know how many there were. I mean, there are a lot of federal liberal MPs. Uh, it wasn't a tribute from anybody else or anybody in the Ontario party. And Ferguson's response, I thought, was quite weak by saying, well, I'm not a member of the Ontario party, Liberal Party. I haven't lived in Ontario for uh, decades and uh, I don't vote there. So what? You're associating your office with a very partisan event. And the whole role of the speaker is to be impartial. Yes, it's at a different level of government. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it's at a liberal event and the federal and provincial liberals support each other. They work in each other's campaigns. Yeah, there's so, a lot of back and forth between those two parties. Certainly under under Justin Trudeau, there has been many of his top uh, his top yeah, yeah. lieutenants of, came of, from Ontario, for sure. Absolutely. Look, all the parties are closely linked at the hip, the federal and provincial parties. And I should say that it's only in the last uh, decade, decade and a half that the federal liberals instituted their own membership card. Uh, 
You know, the, the Liberal Party of Canada, for most of its history, was actually a federation of parties, so that if you wanted to be involved in a federal liberal event, you had to be a member of the provincial party. So, I mean, clearly, in this, this is a position that not only affords you an increase in salary and prestige and so on, but it comes with responsibilities, and one of them is your judgment. And it strikes me that in this case, he's shown very poor judgment. I mean, the reality of impartiality and the impression of impartiality are equally important in his role. Yes, and, and he doesn't deny that it was bad judgment. Looking forward into the future now, the issue is, what is this committee, the House committee, going to do? Are they simply going to slap him on the wrist and now formally create a guardrails so that this doesn't happen? Or will they call for blood? I don't know what they're going to do. It's no. clear that the Liberal Party wants him to hang in as the speaker. That was made clear by the uh, Liberal House leader, Karina Gold, who uh, said, well, he apologized and normally you move on. Well, hold it. Anthony Rhoda apologized and normally we didn't move on. On the other side, you've got the Bloc and the Conservatives who think he should resign. What, ha what hasn't been clear is what the NDP's position is. But had they insisted that, no, he should resign, I suspect we would have had a much faster resolution of this issue. And what I'm looking forward to now is how is this committee going to operate? Is it just going to break down into partisan wrangling, which is most likely given the way the House has been operating? I mean, you even had conservatives booing the Speaker of the House, when he was calling that we should be more respectful and have decorum. What do you think? I mean, it's a, it's a tough one because he did apologize. It shows a shocking lack of judgment. However, he's only been in the role for a little while. Uh, we've seen another one resign. So does this strike you as something, I mean, does this strike you as something that he should resign for? I mean, clearly the partisan issue is well at play here. The Conservatives have, have not liked Fergus from the get-go. He was, of course, the Prime Minister's former parliamentary secretary. So th they're suspicious of this. But of course, when Andrew Scheer was Speaker, the Liberals used to complain about him. So this is not new. No, mind you, it, it, that, this is a good point about the parliamentary secretary. Now that means, you know, and he was parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. Now, that doesn't put him in the cabinet, no. but it means that in the House of Commons, he would often speak for the prime minister because the prime minister isn't there. And this raises the question, should people who've held such positions be speakers of the House? I mean, it's happened before. I, I mean, back in the 80s, it was John Fraser, who was a fisheries minister, there was a scandal called Tuna Gate. Yeah. He ended up being fired from his job. But then they, people had sympathy for him, and they elected him as the speaker. But again, at that time, like at that time, the conservatives had a majority. You know, but you know the vote is secret, and it, so it wasn't surprise whoever they wanted. It was like a consolation prize for losing your job as as minister. They made him speaker. Yeah, not 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 now, not not, the, not a glowing moment, not a glowing moment in parliamentary no, history. No, no. Yeah, and on the whole, if you ask me right now, when you say, "Well, it's he apologized," very bad judgment outweighs the fact that you apologize. It goes without saying you should be apologizing. The issue is, should you be paying a price? Okay, he's only been in the position for two months. So what? 
there's been some big names over the years uh, as speakers. Obviously, Peter Milliken jumps to mind for me because he was speaker the whole time I was on Parliament Hill. John Burkow, when I was in the, in the UK, he was there for 10 years as well. Uh, I mean, you've had some big, big names in these roles, but they all adhere to the same rule, which is you got to keep your nose out of the politics once you get that once you get that gig. Yes, I mean, you know, you are elected as a politician, as you pointed out, but in the House, you have to demonstrate impartiality. Now, incidentally, if there's a tie vote in the House, no, you can vote with your party. Right. That's happened in the past. It's happened in, uh, I know it's happened in Manitoba, and I think it's happened federally. But the issue of a vote didn't come up. You just simply should not be wearing the Speaker's uh, robe at a partisan event. I mean, it's just wrong. You know, it it shouldn't be obviously at a federal liberal affair and it shouldn't be at a provincial liberal affair. Hey, I noticed that the speaker today, Fergus, is down in Washington. He is. He's visiting Nancy Pelosi. This was pre-this is his first visit. It was pre-planned, but he's down there. Yes, of course. He's not here. He's not here. Yeah, but the point I want to make is he's not wearing his robe. True enough. So why does he have to wear it? to to thank uh, John Fraser for his service. And, and I come back to the point, I don't think Fergus would have been invited to do that unless uh, the Liberals wanted to show, oh, you know, here, we've got uh, a catch. We've got the first black speaker of the House of Commons. The Liberals are in power federally. Maybe this this could rub off on us. We're associating ourselves with that party. You are associated, that's fine. But uh, don't put this, don't rub the opposition party's nose in it. Uh, Nelson, you've been watching this for a long time. We had the Rota affair. Now, how that unfolded, how he managed to say those words in Parliament, uh, there's a lot of talk about how that went down. Now you have this. Where are the people that are supposed to be advising the Speaker about what he should and shouldn't, or what they should and shouldn't be doing? Because clearly at some point, someone needs to say, is this a good idea? I mean, I know we're supposed to trust their judgment, but they have people around them as well that are supposed to sort of act as those guardrails. Well, I mean, yes, that's very true about the Speaker. Uh, And he's constantly looking to his uh, assistants, I don't know how many he's got there, for historical research on issues that come up and so on. But look, he did it on his own. He very innocently believed, I have no doubt about this, that this was perfectly okay. But it wasn't okay. And uh, there are a lot of things you do where you're not constantly asking your advisors, uh, can I do this? You know, you figure, well, I know enough about the job. I can do it or I can't do it. He'll make a lot of rulings in the House, and he doesn't stop proceedings to get advice and say, I'm going to come back tomorrow and tell you. Yeah, I suppose it's naive of me to think that he, because he's only been in the position for a couple of months, he might ask someone around him and goes, hey, listen, I've been invited to do this. I'm thinking of doing it in the office with the robes on. Is that a good idea? And someone would have said, well, absolutely not. It's a terrible idea. Do you think Parliament can, do you think he can continue to be Speaker given the circumstances? Well, yeah, he can continue. I mean, if, in fact, he may very well continue. And I'll tell you why, because now that it's being thrown to committee, I, I believe that the uh, uh, parties will want to drag this out and play it up because we they know it's going to get a lot of media coverage. And I think they know that on, uh, on the balance of probabilities, most people think 
like I do, Fergus is wrong. And on the whole, I think he should resign. I mean, that was my reaction, that if you put your finger in the air, you notice that the liberals aren't that popular today. And that would probably include the liberal speaker. I can't believe how much we've talked about the Speaker of the House in the last four and a half months, four months or so, but here we are. Uh, Nelson Wiseman, thank you so much. Thank you. Let me tell you a story of my childhood now, because this will say a lot about my feelings about renovations. I must have been about 11 or 12 when my mom decided it was high time that she had the kitchen and the bathroom of our home renovated, gutted, essentially. Now, we lived on the third floor. We lived in a triplex, those famous Montreal buildings with the stairs up the front, the really steep ones. And we lived up on the third floor. It was big, but it wasn't that big. Um, You know, and again, the place was a disaster for months and months and months. I was in primary school, right? You just want some stability in your life. But this place was covered in a thick layer of plaster dust for months. She kept the new toilet that she had bought for the bathroom right now in the back hatch of her car for weeks. So we'd be driving, you know, parking in front of my school with a toilet in the back seat. And it was just all all a bit all a bit tough for um for a little 10, 11 year old like myself. So um, you'll understand that I developed a bit of an early aversion to major renovations, at least living in them. Uh, and I always get a little edgy when I watch those renovation shows and they start to tear stuff apart because I'm thinking, oh, you know, I think about all the things that could and will inevitably go wrong. Now, forget just doing your kitchen and your bathroom. Imagine having to gut your entire home. I mean, you know, right down to the studs. Well, that's exactly what HGTV Canada host and builder Sebastian Clovis tackles all the time in his new show called, appropriately enough, called Gut Job. It is a, well, it is gut-wrenching. Might be a more appropriate subtitle for some of the stories that he tells. Here's a sample. Gutting any part of your house and taking it back to the studs can be completely overwhelming. If not kept in check, it's easy for a big renovation to go well over budget and fall way behind schedule. But with the best team in the business, wow, we can help homeowners transform nightmare properties into jaw-dropping dream homes. That is epic. Thanks, This is Gut Job. Yeah, you get the point, right? Clovis goes in and helps homeowners, many of whom are absolutely at their wits' end or at their money's end, um, perhaps, uh, to help with perhaps some of their home, all of their home, um, and turn them, as he said, into nightmare properties, into something much, much, much more joyous. But what are some of the common mistakes people make when approaching so-called gut jobs? What should you take into consideration, for instance, before buying a home that needs tons of work? Where to begin? When, when do you choose to take the plunge? How do you escape when you get in over your head? Uh, we thought we'd put all those questions to someone who knows this inside out and down to the studs. Sebastian Clovis is the host of HGTV Canada's Gut Job, and he joins me now. Sebastian, thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Happy to be here. But just even watching the sort of the early parts uh, of Gut Job, it is, you know what struck me so much about it? It's so it's about so much more than just what's what the home's about. It's like it's it's so psychological for the people that you're helping out. Like this is all consuming for a lot of the people that you come to the help uh, that you come to help out. Absolutely. And I think it's that way for most people going into a renovation. Uh, it's it's a it's a mental battle. It's a financial battle. It's an emotional battle, too, because it's never done as fast as you want it to be done. And there's the anxiety over the shifting sands that are, you know, the renovation industry. And so it, 
well, it made sense for us to create a show that really outlined the full spectrum of what it's like to be have a renovation done for you and also execute uh, a renovation and the challenges that come with that. Yeah. And it was just watching people because I guess it's your home, right? So you come home or or either you haven't been able to move in. So you're in limbo or it's the home you already live in. And so you're reminded of this every single, it weighs on you every single day and finding good help is tough too. So this is a, uh, yeah, this is a very, a very, uh, a very needed service that you're doing. Yeah. Well, you know, the home is such a, the home is where the heart is. They say that's where your family is. That's where you spend all of your time. It really is almost like, yeah, an extension of the family in a sense, um, because it's you know you, you, it's the most intimate place in the in the world for you, and so anytime you get a renovation and you're you know it's almost like a part of your family is going under a, a you know open chest surgery, and you're hoping for the best, you're hoping it comes out great, but there's definitely some moments in any renovation when things are a bit dodgy, and if you're not somebody who is actually in the renovation industry and you don't have control over these things, it can be scary. And you've encountered it yourself, too. I mean, this is something that was going on a lot, maybe a little bit less now, just a little bit less, but certainly at the height of the pandemic and through that big real estate boom that we saw, people were having to make very quick decisions about places they hoped would be would turn out okay. And sometimes when you start peeling away, you know, years and years of plaster and so on, you find some unfortunate surprises hidden beneath. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, unfortunate surprises, perhaps, uh, but nothing that... Nothing that you can't expect. You know, if you live right. kind of in a hundred year old home, 120 year old home, you have to expect some of these things. And every time we go into a renovation, it's one of the first things we tell our homeowners is, you know, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. But when we peel back the layers of the onion, here's what we might expect to find, you know. And so hopefully it's not a full blown surprise for everybody because we can't anticipate some of these things. It's just how much is it going to cost? And uh it, at the end of the day, if you can get out of a renovation without any of those unfortunate surprises, then I think that that's the, that's like the gift, you know, that's an exciting thing. So it's one of those things my mom always said, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. That's good advice. That's good advice. It happened to you. I mean, you, you amongst, just so that listeners feel to understand that this happens to just about everybody, you too found yourself in a situation where once you started peeling back the onion, there were a few surprises in a home that you bought. Definitely. It's difficult to, especially when you're in a home that's been freshly renovated, you don't expect there to be any problems because you anticipate that the renovation has been done is complete. You know, it's all the way back to the studs and things have been taken care of on a deeper level, not just a superficial level. So in this city where the, the flip culture was very heavy, people were putting, you know, the lipstick on it. And and when the next family moved in, they anticipated everything had been, been done properly, which is what happened with me, um, you know, and then when you start doing renovations or you start doing little things, you realize, oh, my goodness, nothing that's been done is correct. That's very disheartening. Yeah. What are some of the common problems when you start peeling back that onion? I gather there are certain things, certain things that come up again and again and again uh, that lead to this. You know, as one knows, when you peel back an onion, it leads to a lot of tears, right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, some of the common things that you'll find in, especially in any of the century homes, are are electrical that is has been hacked together over the years by different people. Um, that uh, you know, or the the codes have changed, and you have to update all of your electrical now that the the walls are open. Uh, you can anticipate that the insulation is not up to today's standard, and that's something that you'll have to address. 
And then, of course, the one that everyone is really scared of, which is, you know, foundational problems or problems with the actual structure of the home itself. Uh, you know, there's large parts of of the country where communities are built on top of sand or they're built on top of areas that used to have rivers running underneath them and things shift and move over time. And though that's the one that can be very expensive and can send a, you know, a $150,000, $200,000 renovation and then turn it into a $400,000 renovation. So those are, those are the unfortunate ones that we, we always hope don't pop up. Yeah. I, when when people, I mean, oftentimes, sometimes people decide to gut their places for aesthetic reasons, and then are shocked, being shocked by what they find when they start digging into it. Um, do, do you have advice when it comes to these sorts of things? Is is there is it easier just to leave well enough alone, or do you always recommend fixing those problems no matter what? I mean, my my natural instinct is to say fix those problems yeah. no matter what. Uh, this is a home that you're going to be in for a long time. And it's uh, maybe a little bit of a responsibility to to fix those things up and not just cover them for somebody else to uncover down the road uh, unsuspectingly. So, but of course, time, family, finance, these are all factors that dictate how far you are going to go. You know, yeah. and, I, and, I would, and I would say, you say unfortunate surprises, sometimes I've had a lot of cases with clients where we've peeled things back and they found out that, you know, the joists on the second floor are all cracked and dried out because things have shifted or a beam has been removed without being properly supporting, properly supporting the rest of the house. And in those cases, very often the homeowners are actually very thankful that we found it and that they have an opportunity to fix it. So while, while you could say unfortunate surprises in many instances, Perhaps it's also fortunate that you're able to catch something before, uh, you, you know, before the worst case scenario or or just so that, you know, you have that peace of mind that while you're in your house, that it looks beautiful and functions great. It's also healthy from the inside. Yeah, because you want it to endure, right? I mean, that's it's your it's the biggest investment you'll make. So you want to make sure it's in good shape as well. I should have said I, surprises. Surprises, pleasant and unpleasant, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's all about how you, you know, no pun intended, but it's all about how you frame it. You know, it it, 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 sometimes those uh, surprises also lead to really interesting uh, and creative designs and workarounds that you never would have come up with before. So it, it all depends on how you look at it. When we first moved in, we had a beautiful yard. We had a large deck. We had some dining area. We also had a beautiful shed as well. Lots of entertaining went on there. Until the animals came. Oh, yeah, they came. <laughs> Since they moved in, nature has gutted this backyard. The termites have eaten the deck. Squirrels have torn up the back shed. The dog has eaten any type of vegetation that was here. It's a disaster. Sebastian Clovis is the host of HGTV Canada's Gut Job. He's also, of course, a builder. You'll recognize the name, executive producer for Shoots and Leaves Media. Uh, Sebastian, I, I mean, a lot has changed in the in the housing market, I guess, in the last little while. Interest rates are way up. Feels like ex, you know, expenses are up. Um, it must have changed the, the whole notion of a gut job as well. Just, um, you know, some, some of the parameters have shifted quite a bit in the last year or so. Absolutely. You know, the, the cost of materials are up. Yeah, like you said, interest rates are up. Um, people are don't have as much just free capital floating around to, you know, create those those dream homes the way that they used to. And so it's all about being uh, a little a little bit more efficient with the things that you do and really making sure that the projects you're taking on are the ones that are going to impact your life 
uh, the most and and, uh, and and take your time. There's also renovations that we can do, you know, in in this moment right now that are absolutely necessary that also set up uh, future renovations when perhaps you know, the financial situation gets a little bit better. So taking some of those things into account in today's economy is a smart thing. Yeah, because I guess there is an indication. I mean, my memories of renovations when I was young, my mom renovated her place and we drove around with a toilet in our backseat for about two years because it just <laughs> took a long time. There's this desire to want to do it now, right? And to want to get it done fast. But as you pointed out, I mean, sometimes you just got to be patient with these things. Yeah. And, and and that's a that's a good thing because it allows you to properly plan. It gives you time to really think about what the changes are that you want to make and not just go off of the first thing you see on Pinterest or or whatever the case is. It gives you time to really think about it. And then, of course, acquire some of your materials like your, your mom with the toilet yeah. or, you know, or collecting those those tiles or collecting the, the sinks and the faucets and all of those bits and pieces. That's one of the things that's going to make your renovation go quicker is if you have access to all of your materials on site or close by when you get started. You know, a few years ago, we would have you know started the renovation and been ordering all of our materials as we go because shipping was quick. It didn't take t too much time to get things to site, but it's not just cost anymore. It's also the time that it takes to you get the tiles and get the faucets. Everything is slowed down. And so having to exercise patience can also put you in a position to not make uh, swift decisions at you know Home Depot or Lowe's on the, on the quick faucet that just happens to be available rather than ordering the one that you really want that's going to take you know eight or nine weeks to get there. It feels like it's a, it would be a good time. I mean, I understand the economics of why people have been in such a rush to buy over the past while, uh, but it feels like it's time. And I think you talked about this in, in the first episode of Gut Job. It is time to slow down a bit, right? It's time to slow down a bit because these are big investments and you don't want to be taken by surprise and you should be methodical about it. Absolutely. Um, and also, I think it's time to think about when you're going into a renovation, really creating something that is for you and for your family and not worrying so much about what the resale value is. Yeah, that's great advice. And one thing I did notice, too, is you do have an example in the show of just someone fixing up their, their backyard, right? Like a little change can make a yeah. huge difference for, for, for someone in, in their home. So you can think and you can sort of partition it off that way. Well, I always say when you when you purchase a property, you're purchasing it fence to fence uh, from the front yard to the backyard. Very few people actually ever leave the back of their house and walk to the back of their yard and touch the fence. But right. you've paid for that square footage just as much as you've paid for the house. And so why not take advantage of that square footage and put something in your backyard that's going to make you traverse through it all corners, get right to the back of it and you know put a feature in that back of the yard that draws draws you there, draws your family there, and uh, so that you could take full advantage of your purchase. And just for you, uh, personally, I know that oftentimes you're sort of, it's for a lot of people, they're in, the, in shows such as this one, they really need the help, right? And so when you come in, it's almost like a savior has arrived on the scene, but you also have to learn how to break bad news to people. I mean, it's, it's a big task beyond just- It takes time. Uh, you have to definitely exercise empathy and put yourself in the in the shoes of of whoever your clients are because there are going to be moments where you have to turn to your client and say listen this is going to take 3 or 4 more weeks than we anticipated or there's these hidden costs that we didn't that we didn't know about that you're going to have to cover now and so having good bedside manner is very important as a renovator because it's it's one of those things that is not 
inexpensive. You know, we're 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 never talking less than five figures um, at any point in time, which is a hard number to come by. It is, and I guess you must be excited about this show too, because it uh, it does. It, I mean, it's it's a really interesting show to watch because there's so much or there's so much engineering involved. It's really, yeah, it really goes right right deep into the idea. I mean, a gut job in the very name explains what's going on, but uh, must be really exciting time too for you as well to take on this project. You know, I was super excited when when we were given the green light to create gut job because I knew what I wanted to do with the show, and one of the things that was very important was giving people a full perspective on the journey that it that it is uh, from the my perspective as a GC to the team atmosphere that happens on site between the different trades and the builders that are there, and of course the relationship with the homeowners and and how that goes, and I think that you know, giving a realistic perspective to people who have been watching HGTV for 25 years now and are sophisticated enough to know the difference between, you know, engineered hardwood and and, and regular hardwood. It's kind of like the next step in uh, in in the evolution of, of renovation shows. It goes it goes um, a shovel full deeper. And we've definitely done that on purpose. Well, Sebastian, congratulations. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Ben. a mysterious ritual that dates back thousands of years. No living creature has survived it, except the penguin. They have wings, but cannot fly. They're birds that think they're fish. And every year, they embark on a nearly impossible journey to find a mate. For 20 days and 20 nights, the Emperor Penguin will march to a place so extreme it supports no other life. Yeah, I mean, that was about Emperor Penguins, but I could not play March of the Penguins. I, I imagine most of us have seen March of the Penguins at some point because it is it is a spectacular documentary. I actually, one of the one of the most fun stories I ever got to do while I was based in London um, was going to the London Zoo one year. They called me from the London Zoo and say, hey, would you like to come and see the Penguin weigh-in this year? They're getting their annual checkups. I'm like, yes, yes, I'll be there. So we show up there. Of course, I mean, they're great looking, right? What I didn't realize is we I, we left our sort of kit bags on the, on the, on the ground and uh, the penguins were over there taking it apart in, in a nanosecond. And the, the handler's like, yeah, they, they're, they're curious. I'm like, no kidding. Anyway, they were great to see. So I always had a big love of penguins and, you know, March of the Penguins was part of it. Uh, this is a really interesting penguin story. I spotted it last week. I was just reading around and thought, wow, that's so cool. Imagine if you spent your night sleeping four seconds at a time. Just picture that. Four seconds at a time. The time it took me to say that you're back awake again. And now you're back asleep again. And now you're back awake again. Sounds awful, right? But that's exactly what one breed of penguin, not the emperor, one breed of penguin does. New research shows that chinstrap penguins fall asleep something like 10,000 times a day. Um, scientists studying the birds on Antarctica's King George Island found that they nod off every few seconds to allow them to keep watch. So they, they have to be both rested and vigilant, right? So how do you do both at once when the threats are constant? Well, you sleep a little bit, you wake up a little bit, I guess. And that could mean a cumulative 11 hours of, of sleep per day without ever actually falling into an uninterrupted snooze. Um, and again, it, it's just a, a reminder of how much more complex and varied and situational 
sleep can be. I mean, we think of sleep as sort of getting your eight hours, turning off the, you know, we're quite routine that way if you're lucky. But for lots of other creatures, they don't have that luxury, right? You can't sleep like that. Uh, Christian Harding is a postdoctoral scholar in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care, Sleep Medicine and Physiology at UC San Diego Health. He's also co-author of a recent article in Science about the sleeping habits of the chin strap. Christian, thank you so much. Hi there. Uh, nice to meet this was a uh, and you as well. This was a uh, this is a remarkable. I mean, I was fascinated by by this research uh, and just how it was how it measured their street, their sleep habits. I guess the, the really remarkable thing here is just measuring a chin strap sleep habits given where they live. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty amazing work that they did. Uh, so there's been more and more work recently to try and uh, devise better ways of, of measuring sleep in the wild. It's still something we're we're really learning how to do. Um, and they really, really perfected uh, this work of getting these EEGs, which, which is a, an electroencephalogram. It's a way of measuring the electrical activity in the brain uh, of animals and managing to actually get these on these animals uh, in the wild uh, over a period of time. Uh, it was really novel and gave us this fantastic data. Tell me about the data, too, because it makes for the most incredible headline, the idea of the micro-nap, the four-second nap, and how, because I think for, for any human being, it sounds like, it sounds awful, right? But clearly, clearly it works for the chin strap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned uh, previously, sleep is, is incredibly diverse. Um, like you say, we have um, what you might call monophasic sleep, so, so we have this, this long period of sleep um, throughout the night. Um, it's actually quite rare in, in the animal kingdom. Uh, polyphasic sleep, shorter bouts, is, is, is more common in animals. But when I say shorter, I'm talking about you know minutes, um, not seconds. So it's really amazing that they found these, these four-second um, periods of sleep. Uh, and yeah, if you think of uh, micro-sleeps as being uh, something that the penguins do. Uh, There's actually something that humans might be able to do as well. So um, if you keep people awake for, for a long period of time, if you sleep deprive them, um, even humans will get more and more of these tiny little micro sleeps um, during the day, um, the more you sleep deprive people. Um, but we don't think this is something that you know might be particularly good for us um, or to keep doing for a long time. Whereas these penguins seem to be able to do this uh, as their only form of sleep um, for a long period of time, and yet they're still able to breed and, and be successful in many ways. Um, so clearly this is something that they have have evolved to to deal with um, and they can manage perfectly fine uh, on these four second periods of sleep. Yeah. Physiologically, I guess this is this might be a complicated question, but physiologically, what's going on? How are they able to do this? I mean, and we could talk about the whys, which I think people might be able to predict, but but what's happening? How are they able to how are they able to survive on that kind of sleep? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think the important word there is is survive. We know that they're surviving. We, we don't know that they're thriving. Um, mm. So it, it, lots of other animals will, will sleep for, for very short periods of time, but, but not as short as this. Um, so it, the way that they know that they were able to survive was because they were uh, being able to breed and they were surviving throughout this period of the recording. But obviously we can't ask a penguin, you know, how are you doing? Are you tired? <laughs> Can you keep up? <laughs> um, are you you're feeling terrible? So potentially the micro sleeps might not be the best way um, to sleep. Um, and, and the further follow-up studies need, need to be done to understand um, w whether they're paying a cost to sleeping in this fashion rather than having uh, longer periods of sleep. The why, I think, is pretty straightforward, I, I suppose. But this is just, you, you, I suppose if they could sleep eight straight, they would, but they can't because of the environment they're in. And, you know, they, they have things to protect and their, their predators are, or those that would attack their nests and so on are, uh, you know, who knows when they're sleeping, right? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the ideas behind why they, they're having this, this, this strange sleep pattern. 
um, that there's been evidence from, from birds previously that if you look in uh, big groups of birds that and depending on where you are within the group you, you sleep more or less which, which is uh, related to maybe the uh, the chance of uh, predators um, getting at you and you want to be vigilant during this time um, and if you look at the videos that, that they, they took of these animals it really does it like they're, they're opening their eyes and closing them all the time and allowing them to be vigilant and um, but, but even that we, we need to, to do some more work i mean lots of other animals are constantly under threat of predation and uh, don't have this uh, specific sleeping pattern so we, we still haven't found exactly um, what is specific to the way that they live their lives that um, re they really benefit from this particularly short um, sleeping uh, habit is it situational does it change throughout the year for them depending on what's happening yeah that's a really good question so the, this study was in uh, the, the breeding season so these were um, right. animals that were uh, looking out uh, for their eggs um, they we don't have uh, or I, I, they currently haven't um, shown us the, the data from the rest of the year so that's another thing it'll be fascinating to see whether this is something that um, they can change between or on a seasonal basis um, or whether this is something that they're doing all throughout the year I think that's a, the question that we're going to be really interested to see based on um, hopefully data that's going to come out in the future. I guess what's, and you've already touched on this, Christian, what's really interesting about, about these micro-sleeps and the fact that they can sleep four seconds at a time 10,000 times a day for a cumulative of you know, 11 hours or so, is that it really starts to change our idea of, of what sleep does and what it's for and what kind of impact sleep can have on your ability to function, right? I mean, there's a, it opens up a pretty, I, I know it was already opened up, but this opens up an even wider set of possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, the most fascinating things about sleep um, it is the variation that you see across the animal kingdom. I mean, we know we need to sleep. Um, if you don't sleep, you feel terrible, and eventually you die. Um, so we know it's, it's incredibly important. Um, and yet some animals can, can deal with just a, a few hours of sleep a day, uh, and some, uh, for example, uh, bats and, and sloths quoted as sleeping, you know, most of the day or up to 20 hours a day, some people have suggested. So we are very interested in finding out what explains that variation um, what requires some animals to sleep more than others. Um, and I think it, that's one of the great reasons that we need to do to more work, actually, on uh, in different animals and, and strange animals, especially in the wild, um, where the variation in sleeping behavior has actually evolved. And we, if we can understand that variation, uh, that'll help us to, to understand what functions of sleep uh, are really important for explaining this variation in, in sleep time. Yeah, what, what what fascinates you most about that? Because I guess there's there's sort of we'll know more about the health of a species if their sleep patterns are changing. For instance, I suppose if they're under threat, but also there may be a bunch a whole bunch of stuff that you, we can learn by knowing more about. Uh, it's funny that we haven't studied it more before. I guess it's been really hard to study animals in the wild and how they sleep. But um, I imagine there's a whole bunch of things we could figure out uh, from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, one of the biggest problems has been actually getting the. Uh, the, the technology to be able to do this and, and to have this equipment on, on animals out in the wild for, for long periods of time. Um, but yeah, there are many questions that, that are remaining in, in the field of sleep um, that we, we've struggled to uh, find uh, answers for. And maybe those answers are out in nature. Um, for example, uh, learning and memory. Um, that's one thing that we, we think sleep is very important for us for consolidating um, uh, memories overnight. Um, and it's really interesting to think that if we require this length of time to, to consolidate memories, can an animal that only sleeps two hours a night or three hours a night um, consolidate memories just as effectively? And if that's the case, why does it take us uh, so long to do this? Um, another in interesting thing is, uh, is, is our health. Um, so we know, for example, that the immune uh, system, immune function is, is, is tied to, to sleep. 
Um, so do we need to, to sleep a certain amount of time for us to be healthy? How can other animals that can do this so uh, effectively with, with much shorter amount of time? Um, we really want to understand this variation um, to, 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 again, like I say, understand what the functions of, of sleep are in, in the animal kingdom. Yeah, because I imagine so many different animals have, have just adapted over the years to being able to survive, hunt, eat, avoid predation, and sleep because it's so essential to them. But none of them, not many of them, I mean, I guess that not all of them have the luxury of being able to grab eight hours of shut-eye, right? They just don't. I mean, you, there's some great advantage. I mean, obviously, you, I, I suspect you've read the same Guardian article that I found <laughs> wound up in and talking about African bush elephants, elephants sleeping for two hours a day, mostly while standing up. And, um, you know, I, I, and other big differences between sexes, male fruit flies need 10 hours a day. Females are fine on four. I mean, sleep is a fascinating topic uh, when it comes to us and, and the animal kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, one of the strongest uh, relationships is actually is diet. So if you think of predators versus prey, um, predators tend to uh, tend to sleep a lot longer um, than the prey do, and that's because they're they're less worried um, about what's going to come around the corner and eat them. Um, so yeah. something as basic as that uh, dictates sleep time, and yet we still need those animals that that really are under threat still need that sleep, which just uh, tells you just how important sleep uh, is to, to all animal life. Yeah, I get the impression lions don't do without sleep much. Um, what would what would you do now with with you? You mentioned already that this this data came out of breeding season. You mentioned that it would be nice to find out what the chin strap does outside of that critical part of the year for them. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. So uh, yeah, but Paul Antoine Lebrel and, and his team who uh, collected this data, um, they they have these devices now that they can use um, and they can take these out on on, on penguins and, and the rest of the year and all sorts of other animals. Um, so uh, hopefully this um, watch this space and there'll be more data to come and answer some of those questions that have come from this incredibly exciting study. Yeah, I guess the main one you're looking for is just to see if there's any difference between those 10,000 microsleeps at that time of year versus other times of year, whether their sleeping patterns change. And that would be interesting, too, to figure out if their sleeping patterns change depending on, on the time of the year, as it does with some with flying birds, right, who obviously go for long periods of time without sleeping, then make it up when they land. Correct, yeah, and, and whether there's some sort of rebound. So if, if the penguins are having to do this during one part of the year, um, do they need to, to catch up later in the year? Um, and to maybe fulfill some of the functions that they weren't getting earlier on. Um, we don't know how, how long um, sleep rebound effects can, can last for. We know that you know over, over a day, if you sleep deprive someone one day, um, they sleep more the next day. Um, but we don't know if you sleep deprive them you know, for three months, are they going to sleep more in the three months after that? So um, this example, it could be a really good example of a, a long-term kind of um, sleep uh, change being enforced by the environment. How do these animals then cope with that in, in, in the following period of the year? And that'll be fascinating right. and a really important example that we just can't recreate in the lab um, and, and totally reliant on, on, on wild data for this, which is why um, wild sleep studies are so important. The last thing that I was going to ask you about is I did read, I was mentioning, I was at the London Zoo years ago doing their penguin weigh-in, which was pretty fascinating. And one of the theories about why they do these microsleeps is that it's so loud in a group of large, because they hang out together, and they're such, in such large groups, they can't sleep. It's too, it's too noisy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, the social uh, sleeping is, is something that, that I've been uh, interested in and have worked in uh, before. Um, so, yeah, there's the, the two sides, as, as they write in the paper. One is you're in a big group, so maybe you're safer and you sleep more. But on the other side, you've got uh, people making noise and you've got maybe uh, other penguins coming past and disrupting you and maybe wanting to, to take your egg. 
so you're constantly under those uh, other pressures, uh, even in, even in humans. Um, the, the, the studies that show um, some people sleep uh, better without their bed partner than they do when they're there, um, because they're also being disrupted um, during sleep as well. So I think the, the, the social side of sleep is, is something that we really don't know enough about, and, and hopefully this is uh, one, of the, one of the studies that we can start looking into this. No, you might you might open up a can of worms if you get get into that one, Christian, about about <laughs> humans and their sleeping partners. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. It's a fascinating study. Thanks so much for uh, for shedding some light on what it all means. Yeah, great to be on. Thank you.